The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Poets, said Percy Shelley, are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. How important is poetry, or literature for that matter, to our world? Does it have the power to change things? During the Cold War, critics would point to the treatment of writers in a totalitarian regime. If literature is not important, they would say, then why are the Soviets oppressing writers? Why do dictators fear a free press? Why do they care about satirical plays? or realistic novels, or poems. Today, we'll be looking at short stories and an exciting new development in one of the world's longest-standing totalitarian regimes, North Korea. Generations of horror. We mock North Korea, make fun of their leaders. They are cartoonish, and so we treat them and their country like cartoons. That's unfortunate, because 20 million people have been living out a nightmare for generations. For more than 70 years, a country has had almost no contact with the outside world. And within its borders, terror reigns supreme. A perceived political crime can lead to a death sentence, either a swift execution or the slow death sentence of being sent to prison. No contacts, no freedoms, husbands pitted against wives, family members encouraged to inform on one another. We'll walk through some of these horrors and the astonishing new development in the world of literature. But first, I want to introduce our guest. Right after I tell you about our sponsor, Audible.com. Now you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com hol. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Okay, our guest today is Terry Hong, one of America's great readers. That's not a joke, not an overstatement. Terry reads a lot of books, and she writes a lot of reviews. She's the curator of the website Book Dragon, a new media initiative of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, which serves as a forum for those interested in learning more about the Asian Pacific American experience through literature. If you visit Book Dragon, you'll get a sense of Terry's reading and her writing interests. All the reviews and interviews and descriptions that you'll find there are a testament to the ability of Terry to read a lot of books and tell us all about them. I invited Terry onto the show and asked her for some ideas for topics. She listed several books about North Korea, and we had a long discussion I'm going to play a portion of that discussion here. First, I'll tell you a little about Terry, her background, and her life as a reader. Then I'll tell you about the books she chose and why. And finally, this is what we're building toward. There has been a very vivid and exciting development in the world of literature. For the first time, we have stories, real literature, real literary short stories written by a writer in North Korea, a very brave person who goes by the name Bandi, who has risked his life to write stories not sanctioned by the government. We've had literature about North Korea. A few have escaped and 
written poetry or nonfiction, memoirs about their experiences, but we've never had it from someone who was living there, who grew up there amid the terror, who was brave enough or desperate enough to write literature while still living in North Korea, and who has published the stories outside the country while he still lives in North Korea. It's astonishing. They're not yet published in America, but Terry has read them, read the collection, which is called The Accusation, and she'll join us to talk about them. What are the stories like? What do they tell us? Who is this brave author? And what do we know about him? So, those of you who have been with me from the beginning will remember, I don't take literature for granted. I'm not assuming that literature is important. I started this podcast to examine it, to see what it can do for me. It was once hugely important to me, the closest thing I had to religion, and then it seemed as though literature had faded. I didn't know if that was just me, just my process I was going through, or if the world had started to turn elsewhere. A few people misunderstood my point in those early days. I was not asking if people stopped caring about printed books. I don't care if literature is read on an e-reader. I really don't care about that debate at all. Read a novel however you want. But recognize that novel reading is on the wane. That was my point. Why is that? What's replacing it, if anything? And I was not asking individuals if they themselves still love to read. Of course they do. A lot of people who read, a lot of passionate readers, probably the intersection between passionate readers and the people who listen to this podcast is probably very high. What I was asking is if the internet and social media, any other developments in the world, had replaced what we gain from literature. We read to experience another world, right? Well, can't one do that by reading a blog written by someone in another country? Or you might say literature is for amusement, for entertainment, to escape. Well, tweets are amusing. The internet's full of Ways to escape. We read for education. Maybe. Well, Wikipedia and Google supply us with the information that we need. More information than we could ever absorb. Finally, we read to see what others experience, how they view life. Can Facebook give us that? So, I had some doubts. I'm getting there, people. I'm... On this journey, your presence, your feedback has helped me as I've gone through this journey. But this this gives you, why am I recounting this today? I think it gives you a sense of why I'm eager to speak with people like Terry Hong. Terry's a reader, a passionate reader, an advocate for reading. She herself reads an incredible amount. And hey, what image does that conjure up for you if I say someone reads two books a day? I'm guessing that you picture her waking up making some coffee, sitting on the back porch with a book, right? In the winter, she's in front of a fireplace with a book on her lap. But how about this? Terry trains for ultra marathons and listens to audiobooks, a lot of audiobooks. At some points in her training regime, she runs 20 miles in the morning and 20 miles in the afternoon. That's a lot of hours, a lot of books. It's a different paradigm. And yet, she loves it. In our conversation, she suggested that maybe she escapes her own world by immersing herself in the stories of others. 
Maybe so. Maybe that's what compels her to read. And maybe with Book Dragon, she's recreating something else. I felt like this was a rosebud moment when I was interviewing Terry. I asked her about when she began reading, whether she was one of those kids who read books under the covers. She confirmed that she was a great reader when she was a kid, and then she wrote little descriptions of all the books on index cards and stored them, filed them away in a kind of card catalog. Isn't that wonderful? Not just the reading, but the desire to organize and record. Terry has co-authored two books, and both of them have the same impulse. Here's what to read. Here's where to begin. Here's how to get started on this journey of expanding your world through literature. And then her mother threw the cards out, as mothers do. Terry told me that she still regrets it. And I jumped in and said, uh, well, did you ever think that Book Dragon might be your attempt to recreate that card catalog? Right? She hadn't thought of that before. I felt like I was presenting Citizen Kane with his sled. This was fun. Her rosebud is, is not a sled. It's the card catalog she was building in which her mother threw out. That's what Book Dragon is. Take a look at that site, listener. And tell me that it doesn't look like index cards organized, arranged, put in place, documenting a reader's life, a reader's path. Well, who knows? Maybe so. Maybe that, maybe that was it. We also discussed another part of her past. Carrie's mother is from North Korea. She was able to leave, and almost everyone else in the family did not. And for decades, there's been no contact between the two sides of the family, between Terry's side and the side that remained in North Korea. This fascinates me. It's a heart-wrenching story, a real 20th century, and now, tragically, a 21st century tragedy. You can't write a letter, can't exchange photos, no news. Are they alive? Have they married? Had children? What is their life like? If this happened to you, this kind of break with half your family and you had no way of contacting the people on the other side, but you felt like it was important to know what things were like for them, would you turn to literature? Wouldn't that be your best resource? Films, if they existed, but even more so, novels, short stories, and poetry, wouldn't that be the best way to dive into their minds, to know that things were okay, or if they weren't, just how horrible things were? How the decades of propaganda and state-imposed terror had distorted their thinking, and the effects of the awful, grinding poverty, the desperation. A novel might help you learn more, might help you understand the experience, the contours of it, and it might give you some hope, some hope that even in this atrocious situation, some humanity had survived, something recognizable the puny, inexhaustible voice, as William Faulkner put it. And yet, for decades, we were deprived of that. No literature from North Korea at all. Clamped down is too airtight. How do you write literature when it's not available for you to read? And there's no place to publish it. And everyone around you, including your own family members, have been conditioned to be a spy, 
They're desperate enough to survive that they will inform on you. So Terry had a list for me, four books she's read recently that shed some light on North Korea from the outside. The first was a spy novel, thriller, a bit of intrigue that starts in North Korea. The book is called The Boy Who Escaped Paradise by J.M. Lee. He's a writer from South Korea. North Korea in the novel is a place of mysterious origins, a place where dark plots can begin in obscurity. This is getting us at North Korea, exposing us to the world, but the rest of the books on Terry's list go deeper. The next one was a Kim Jong-il production, the extraordinary true story of a kidnapped filmmaker, his star actress, and a young dictator's rise to power by Paul Fisher. This was the incredible story, nonfiction book written by a journalist, of two superstars in the world of Korean cinema, South Korea's greatest director, and their biggest film star, who were married, and the movie-mad great leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, managed to kidnap them both and force them to make a film for him. It's an incredible story. But again, it's a strange window into North Korea. Does it tell us about North Korean lives, the lives of the everyday citizen? Maybe a little. But it's really not the same as, as having a Chekhov or someone writing in that tradition. Someone bringing us the news from within, a perceiving sensibility, applying itself to the general conditions of everyday life. Terry also singled out for me a novel called How I Became a North Korean by Chris Lee. Chris Lee works in South Korea helping North Korean refugees. She knew them very well, and she set a novel in North Korea. Terry was full of praise for this novel, and here we have a novelist's view, and Chris Lee with her dedication to helping North Koreans and her insight into their world and their mentality and their mindset could give us a strong sense of the world, all the powers of fiction by an informed, talented novelist. Given the circumstances, it seemed like that's as close as we would get in the world of fiction. And then there was the story of an escapee, probably, I don't know, Terry described it as perhaps the most devastating, difficult book she has ever read. It's called Escape from Camp 14, One Man's Remarkable Odyssey from North Korea to Freedom in the West by Blaine Harden. I'll put all these books on the website. You can access them if you want. They're all highly recommended by Terry. In this book, Escape from Camp 14, this is the one that tells us really how bad life in North Korea can be. It's a horror story. The story of Shin Dong-hyuk, who was born in a political prison camp, his parents were not married in any conventional sense. They were both political prisoners, and they were paired together to breed new prison camp workers. Shin had no family ties, no affection, no community, nothing. He describes his life as an animal existence that he had to evolve from when he eventually escaped. When he was in prison, he was basically treated like a slave. He and his fellow prisoners were punished for the smallest of discrepancies. He saw a girl beaten to death because she had five kernels of corn in her pocket. She was, he was six years old at the time. At 14, he was tortured and forced to watch his mother being executed. At 22, he dropped a sewing machine and had his finger cut off as a punishment. His entire life, everyone around him was trained to inform on one another and not to feel any remorse for doing so. He described it as living a predator existence. These camps are still there, 
we've seen from satellite imagery that new construction has been happening. The camps hold something like 200,000 prisoners. And political crime might be that one's grandfather fled the country during the Korean War. That's it. That's enough to have you condemned to spend your life in one of these camps. And the specter of being sent to the camps hangs over the entire North Korean society. You are found in possession of a magazine from China or South Korea. It's considered treason. You might be executed or sent to the camps. Okay, that brings us up to the present. There's a book that's coming out. It's It's been out for a couple of years in South Korea, but now it's coming to the United States in English translation. It's called The Accusation, and it's a collection of short stories by a highly placed official, a writer in North Korea. He goes by the name Bondi, and God knows what's happened to him now. Hopefully he's okay. He took a huge chance writing these stories hiding them from everyone around him, and eventually smuggling them out. There will be a crackdown, I'm guessing. Hopefully he manages to survive it. He and all those around him will stay safe. So in some sense, this collection of short stories is precious, sacred. I feel bad even for suggesting that literature might not be relevant anymore, because for Bondi... It's a matter of life and death. His drive to tell these stories, the compulsion he felt to write something other than propaganda, and the difficulties and the bravery involved in getting these stories out of the country where they can be shared with the world. The the story collection is being published in America this spring, but Terry has had a chance to read them and will tell us about them today. We've not had dissident literature from North Korea before. We had it from the Soviet Union, of course, from Solzhenitsyn and Pasternak and writers in the Eastern Bloc. You'll hear me ask questions about that, about the paradigm for dissident writing that we had during the Cold War and the ways in which Bondi differs from them. And let's keep in mind what's at stake here. The people of North Korea, for 70 years, they've been under this intense pressure. Most North North Koreans have never known anything different from a world of enforced fealty, complete subservience, a terrorized populace. We can know a a bit about their economy, their geography, their imports and exports. Their leaders are visible to us. But the people, how do they think? What do they think about? What do they dream? What do they long for? How do they live? It is as opaque to us as a forgotten civilization an undiscovered island, or an ancient city that disappeared into the sands, leaving no trace. People are living on this world, and we have very little idea what it's like to be them. Until now. Literature, at its best, is like flashlights scanning the night sky, illuminating what we cannot otherwise see. And in this case... The landscape is incredibly dark, and the beam from the flashlight is very, very alone. So let's get to the interview. This is Terry Hong, reader extraordinaire, herself descended from a North Korean background, telling us about these incredible stories by Bondi and about what it was like for her to read them. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. How would you characterize these stories? What what are they like? They are definitely further testimony as to what is happening in the country. Mm-hmm. They also show, again, if you are an elite member of the society, you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know what's, what's going on outside the country. You know what's going on in the furthest reaches of the country. You know about the abuses. You are living through the abuses. And you know there's something better outside. Bondi is in a position to know that. Yes. He's an active writer, and he's still an active writer in the top echelons of of, uh, Pyongyang. Is he safe? Yeah, I wonder um, how safe he is. Um, He was in his 20s when he first published his writing in North Korean magazines and Mm. began to make a name for himself. And that's just grown since. And he's... A regular contributed. Uh, sorry, he's a regular contributor to various periodicals. He's uh, writing pretty regularly, and his writing is well received. And then he's been doing these on the side, his sort of true stories of what's happening. I was going to say, so he's a contributor to periodicals and magazines. But my guess is that most of those take the party line, so to speak, or glorify the leaders. And it, it's probably, as far as I know. Uh, there aren't publications allowed in North Korea that would even be satirical or or subversive in any in any way. No, absolutely not. I mean, any sort of even a hint at the subversion will basically get killed or exiled or thrown into prison camp. Right. There's no room for subversion at all. There was a um, I think it came out last year or maybe two years ago. The book is called Dear Leader, mm-hmm. and the subtitle is Poets by Escapee, A Look Inside North Korea. And the writer's name is John Jin Sung, and uh, he's actually mentioned in the afterword in this book because 
he was the equivalent to, he came out in 2014, he was the equivalent to like the Poet Laureate mm -hmm. of North Korea. So he enjoyed a very lauded position. Mm -hmm. He had access to a lot of uh, internal information that most never did. There were never will. And he grew up believing all the hype. The leader was this godlike figure, and his followers adored him, and for good reason, because he was so accomplished, and, and he is a god, pretty much. And then Zhang finally meets him. He's been summoned to this midnight feast, and he realizes that this godlike figure is actually just a crass little vain man, mm. and he bears no resemblance to the, the glorified images that that Zhang, the poet, and everyone else has been yeah, lauding over been, the years. Yeah, over the years, exactly. And from there, he starts doing more research and becomes more aware of what's happening. He sees the starvation that's happening. It's going to take hundreds of thousands and millions of lives. He sees the discrepancies of, of what's official and what's really out there among the people. He witnesses an execution for some woman who did some tiny little error. And um, so he, he begins to really open his eyes to what's going on around him and eventually escapes mm. to tell the story. Um, but his position apparently is very similar to the position that the writer who was Bondi has mm. mm -hmm. and still has in the inner circles of Pyongyang. Right. I was trying to find what North Koreans might have read and, and to see what Bandi might have read. But I guess if he's in a in a higher echelon, he might have access to more literature than uh, what would be available to uh, an average North Korean individual. But I, I had heard that what's, what's available is there are a few uh, works like Tales from Shakespeare and some folk tale, Korean folk tales. Do you have any sense from reading it? Is, is Bandi writing in a, a particular tradition? Or could you detect any influences? Or does he refer to any works that he's read? I don't think he refers to any works that he's read. And they do have access to the Russian writers. Mm -hmm. And they do have access to some Chinese writers. If they have access to Western so-called classics like Dickens or, or you know, Hugo or any mm -hmm. of those people, um, it's going to be under the radar. And they could get sent to prison camp if they're discovered with that kind of subversive literature. Mm -hmm. I don't really detect a style um, or an, an inspiration. It, it reads more like journalism. Mm -hmm. And it, it says in the afterword that it's very much um, taken from real life, either experiences that he's had or that he knows of. Um, they do correlate quite a bit with some of the stories that have come out by the escapees and memoirs. It's just riddled with betrayal and danger and um, the inability to to ever feel safe because one day you may be a, a lauded member of, of, of your community and the next day you're sent off without any explanation and your family is to departs unknown to a life that, that is probably going to be so horrific or not necessarily going to want to survive. Right. There's, there's a story actually about about a woman who's the daughter of a, a glorified revolutionary and um, she's reported on because her curtains are not closed or they are closed 
when they're not supposed to be because mm-hmm. that must mean she's doing something she shouldn't be behind those curtains. And so she falls in grace because she's closed her curtains. I mean, it's the smallest little details that it, they're absurd. They're, they're, they're so absurdly trivial, and yet it can cost you your life. Right. And it can cost you your, not just your life, but for generations, it'll have reverberations for generations to come. And the first story is about a man whose father is considered a murderer because he let a, um, a crate of rice seedlings die. Uh. And for generations, his children have a mark against them. His grandchildren will have a mark against them. Uh. And so their lives are made miserable because they are the progeny of bad people, evil people that were doing something against the state on purpose. Um, there's another story where a man is is told he has to cut down the elm tree in front of his home, and uh, it was planted as a sign of hope after the during the Korean War when socialism was going to save everybody and make a wonderful, beautiful life for everyone who fought for the North Korean side with all these visions of this equal society where everyone will eat well every day, will eat meat every day, will eat rice every day, something that we might take for granted, but no one in, in North Korea can take for granted. They're making a road through the that area, and they need the elm tree to be cut down, and it causes him his life basically, because mm. he doesn't, he won't agree to have it cut down. Sometimes the strand through running through dissident literature is is kind of satirical or absurdist to say, look at how ridiculous these these authority figures are. It sounds like that's not the tone in, in Bundy. It sounds like it's more of a, almost like a cry for help. This is the reality that we're facing. When will the horror end? I would hope readers would get a sense of the desperation and mm-hmm. the need to do something besides just read the book. If you took every story and just outlined it for what actually happens, it's exactly what you said about the absurdist comedy. Right. You, you can't believe that this is really what is happening because it makes no sense to us. But this is, it, this is what's happening. This is real and the way it's written it's very much and this happened and this happened and this happened and then this horrible tragedy is a the result of these tiny little things that in most people's lives at least from a vantage of freedom you just can't believe you're shaking your head thinking oh no oh no that just can't be but it is and people are dying and people are being tortured and people are disappearing and and people do whatever they can to stay alive. Mm. And the other thing that I associate sometimes with some other dissident literature is there seems to be a community that grows up of, you know, in a cafe or there's kind of underground meetings or there's people who are sharing with one another their frustration and, and their, you know, sort of a reality check. Does he have anything like that? Are people, like our husbands and wives, able to talk to each other and say, this is horrendous, what we're living through here? Or is it really just, people are just isolated because they've been so victimized by this terror? I think, unfortunately, it's more the latter. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you can't, they can't trust one another mm-hmm. because of the history. Right. 
if it means you're going to survive if you report that your next door neighbor has an illegal radio or was saying something, or they hadn't dusted their portrait of, of the great leader. Mm. If, if that means you'll get a bowl of rice with meat and you're that desperate, mm. the foundation of family, the foundation of society, the, the foundation of, of a community that, um, you know, supports one another and rallies and, and wants to grow. It just doesn't exist. It's just like the, the, the young man from the prison camp who was bred to be a slave. There's no sense of the, the whole social structure has been damaged, mm. broken, and perhaps irreversibly so. One of the things that, that um, happens when a person escapes from North Korea and eventually ends up in South Korea, if they get to South Korea, they actually have a, an entire sort of re-entry program where they live in a controlled environment, not controlled like they're slaves or, or made to work in any way, but that they are exposed to a very different culture and lifestyle and just basic details of, of how to get through a day. I mean, people don't know about bank accounts. People don't know about electric pills. People don't understand roads. People don't understand, you know, a school. People don't understand computers. They've never seen neon lights. Mm. But so much of what we take for granted, they've never had exposure to and just can't believe. They, right. they don't know what a, a radio is or, you know, that there's 4,000 channels on a, on a television station that they are actually able to see the rest of the world on a little you know, phone, right? basic things. They just, so they need to go through an, an introduction to life in the West or, or life in life in a free society. Right. And at the same time, they probably also have a lot of psychological issues they have to get over of trusting people and, yeah. and, you know, being able to tell their story, but probably being, having been conditioned not to tell your story, not to, not to describe any truth. Absolutely. Then it's not something that we can fathom. I mean, so much we take for granted. I mean, a book, you can go and pick up any book you want. That doesn't exist. That, that sort of basic freedom, it really is a mind-blowing experience to right. have access to so much. You don't even have the, the context or reference to dream about, and yet here it is. And the other thing uh, with a lot of the dissident literature is you get the feeling that they're writing it for their fellow citizens and they're sort of saying, this will help you see that you're not alone, that I'm I'm here with you or that we can all share this experience together of what we're going through. But Bondi, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he had no expectation that any people within North Korea would ever be able to read these stories. He was writing them more of a, a cry for help to the outside world. He never expected anyone to read. And he kept them well hidden. He wrote them over six years. He never showed anyone. And I think it was a cousin um, who revealed that, that, that she was going to make an attempted escape. And mm. she's the only person he ever told about the fact that he had these stories. There is actually a, a sort of odyssey shot overview of, of how the, the manuscript gets out. 
And it does not get out with the cousin. There's all sorts of machinations that have to happen to actually get it out. And um, it is smuggled out, and it gets smuggled out years after the cousin first knows about it. And just in case you don't believe the story, um, there's a, a note from a major activist who works with North Korean refugees in Korea. And he tells his part of the story of how it's, this book is ending up in our hands. It's like another short story. I was going to say, that story is told in the volume. So when we buy this yes, book, we'll get, that, we'll get that story uh, as well. Wow. I'm not, I shouldn't give you any more details because it's just so fascinating. After, and they put it at the end for a reason. Mm. And after you've read these stories, if this is like your first exposure to anything about North Korea, you will be shaking your head thinking, oh, no, no, it's a work of fiction. It's a short story collection. And then you read the afterward and you, the details that come out are just, they're incredibly illuminating, but at the same time, they're also terrifying. And again, it's, it's after you've, you've read this, it's really hard to turn a blind eye to what's happening. It's the, the regime has to fall, and it's going to need, it has to be from the outside. Mm-hmm. Someone goes in, someone has to figure out how to dismantle the system. And then once that happens, there's going to be a whole lot of need for many, many more people to help the North Korean population to rebuild a sense of community. Right. I'm curious, for someone like you who's spent so much of your life reading literature, and then you also have this important part of your background being North Korea. What was the experience like for you as a reader? Yeah, I mean, there are times when I think, well, is this a relative of mine? Do I share some sort of genetic code with, with any of these people that I'm reading right. about? And it's it's very possible. Um I do think about everyone that got left behind, where they are. Most of the people are probably dead now. It's been decades. Mm-hmm. You know, what about their children and their grandchildren? Yeah. And when mm-hmm. the country opens up, will, will we recognize each other? Will we, will we ever, you know, make that, make the reconnection? One thing I, I have not talked about, which um, I really want to highlight, is I can't read in Korean. Um, I can read in Korean. I can read the words, but I can't read. The way I read in English, um, my, my Korean is at an elementary school level. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be so um, forthright in my gratitude, my undying gratitude to the translators who, who make this accessible to, to me and to everyone else who um, needs it translated into English to be able to access these phenomenal stories and experiences. Right. And now we also have uh, Bondi to thank, who... I mean, he, he must be one of the bravest people, I think, on the on the planet. Yeah, and I, you know, the first thing I did when I read this book was, is he? my first thought was, is he still alive? Right. How much longer will he be alive? Is he in a prison camp? You know, are his family, are his family members scattered and dead? I don't know. So there's a sense of, of real terror, and our, our ability to read this book has put, him in grave, grave, grave danger. And yet the organization that uh, helped get the book out of North Korea said that Bondi would have tears streaming down his face to know that the book is being published in other countries. I mean, he's a writer, so he wants his stuff read. Yeah. Oh, amazing. It's almost like there was this barren field and this little seedling managed to 
sprout. Yeah, I hope a gorgeous garden comes forth. Oh, so do I. Terry Hong, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today on the history of literature. The history of literature, that, that just sounds so ominous. <laughs> <laughs> history of my, my small journey through literature, how's that? Okay, there we go. Incredible. Simply incredible. I'm inspired now. I can't wait to read these stories, and I hope you're looking forward to them as well. Take action. Take action. Start from within. My thanks to Terry Hong for that wonderful glimpse into a reader's world, and of course, to our sponsor, Audible. Remember, you can visit audibletrial.com slash HOL for a free 30-day trial. Compliments of Audible and me, Jack Wilson. You can contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofliterature. As always, please do subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends. I'm planning some new stuff at our Twitter account, WriterJack. That's writer Jack J-A-C-K-E. You can stream shows from there now, too, and your favorite podcasting apps. So many good places to access the podcast, and all for free. What else? We'll have Mike Palindrome on again soon if he's still talking to me. He bet big on his football team against my football team, and my team won. I would hate to lose a friend over something as trivial as football, but hey, we're in an era of trivialities. When trivialities are being blown out of proportion, didn't... E.M. Forster say, If I am someday forced to choose between my friends and the Green Bay Packers, I hope I have the courage to choose the Green Bay Packers. I'm paraphrasing. Or, actually, I might be misremembering the quotation, but don't worry. Mike will be back soon, and many other good shows will follow. So let's get ready to continue on this journey together. Subscribe today. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>